Amen. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our worship gathering on a beautiful holiday weekend. I uh, would love to have you find a Bible. If you uh, don't have one, weren't able to bring one with you, there should be a red Bible sitting on the, the row that you're in somewhere. Or you can uh, take out the sermon notes portion, uh, the, the loose sheet that's in your bulletin, and scan the QR code. You can follow, it, uh, follow along that way. But turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. Uh, 1 Kings 19. Before we get into the sermon, I want to make just uh, one more quick announcement and this one has to do with uh, some upcoming sabbaticals. Uh, some of you who have been around the uh, church for any length of time have experienced sabbatical, that the church has adopted this, this policy to give uh, pastors who are in full-time vocational ministry the gift of time. Every four years, uh, pastors receive three months uh, to sort of pull away from ministry, uh, to spend intentional time with God, to, to be restored and fed so that we can lead well. And it's this amazing gift uh, that, that I have received, other pastors have received, and we really hope, like our prayer as pastoral staff is that the gift is returned uh, to you as a congregation through leaders that are healthy and, and whole. And so Howard and Jesse are both having uh, sabbaticals that begin here in the next couple of weeks. Howard, uh, our lead pastor, is going to uh, start his sabbatical on June 19th and will go through uh, mid-September. Uh, Howard is hoping to step back and reflect a little bit on journey as a whole and where we are as a church, three campuses, uh, planning to do a lot of reading, attending a couple conferences, and just spending a lot of time in just quiet reflection. Kathy, Howard's wife, is looking forward to spending some uh, relaxed time with their kids and grandkids, especially those in Virginia and Pennsylvania. Some of you may not know, Howard and Kathy, they have three kids. Uh, one is in, uh, is in Wichita, another is in, and their family is in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and then another one is in Pennsylvania, and their family is now moving to New Hampshire. So that commute is getting a little bit longer to go see them. So they spend some time with their family at a distance, so this incredible gift of time. And then uh, Howard is also... Uh, he is spending a portion of his time right now starting this new ministry called Revive. And there are eight churches. Uh, many of the churches are from New York, actually. And he's coaching them and coaching leaders and elder teams toward just um, engaging in mission in their own neighborhoods and communities. So Howard's going to continue doing that while on sabbatical. Jesse, our youth pastor who's in the house, is um, starting his sabbatical on July 3rd after they get back from Thailand. And his sabbatical will go to October 2nd. Jesse plans uh, to spend time in school. Uh, some of you know he and I are both in seminary, and we've had our summer break. Um, we ended the class on Friday, started the class on Monday. That was our summer break. And so Jesse's going to continue going uh, to school, learning about youth ministry in a multi-site church. Like, just how do we... How does he lead youth ministry at, at three locations? And just hopes to spend some time being outside with his family. Some of you may not know this, but Jesse's a wood carver. He's gotten into wood carving pretty significantly over the last couple of years. He hasn't shown me anything that he's made. So, but talk to him about that. I'm sure he would love to, to, to talk uh, about uh, some of that. So I imagine he'll do some wood carving as well. Um, yeah, pray for them. Pray for Howard and Kathy. Pray for Jesse and Shiloh and their families as they step away and just get to receive this time, this gift of being, uh, being, having this vision for church leadership rekindled in them and this intense um, time with God. So pray, pray for them and bless them. 
Also pray for us who are sort of left behind over the summer. So, 1 Kings chapter 19, this is, our, this is our third week in this series called Elijah, where we've just been looking at these, these few chapters from the book of 1 Kings, Elijah's life, and some of these high points, and today we're talking about a low point. Uh, the, the title of this sermon is called uh, Discourage. Discourage, which I find it to be an interesting word, uh, to have your courage sort of taken away from you, to find yourself at a place for whatever reason, whether it's from your own choices or just things that have happened outside that you've had no control over, but the courage isn't there. The courage for what? Well, the courage to get out of bed in the morning or the courage to come to a worship service where everybody seems so stinking happy, right? You know, like, is this this, I, I find it hard maybe. Um, I don't know if you've ever had these moments where it's like you know you're going to be in a public setting and you know people are going to ask you how you're doing and you don't really want to be honest so it would be easier to just kind of do this because people are going to ask you, hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. The truth is you're not fine. Uh, you're in pain. You're hurting. But we just sort of like feel this need to be something we're not, to present something we're not. And so we just sort of like put this smile on our face because this is how we feel like we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be happy. I remember learning this song as a kid. Uh, some of you may, maybe did too, uh, and it has plagued me. It's called, uh, I'm in, I don't know what the title of it, but, it, but one of the lines says, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. I see some of you saying it with me, I'm happy all the time. Well, the problem is I'm not. Like Joel Osteen may be the only person on the planet who's that happy all the time. Um, I'm not happy all the time. And when we view this, sort of view life with God from the perspective that if I'm really sort of in a good place with Jesus and my relationship with God, I'm going to be happy all the time. But what happens when I'm not happy? Well, then something's wrong. I feel like, well, maybe, maybe there's something wrong with faith, with Jesus, with this whole thing. Or maybe more close to home, we start to feel like something's wrong with me. I'm broken. Something, something's wrong with me because I'm not happy all the time and I'm supposed to be. Um, one of the things I love about the Bible is that it is brutally honest. The details of people who just crater hard. It's not edited out. It's not whitewashed. It's not, the Bible is not a story of incessantly happy people. Does that make anybody else feel good? Uh, it's not a story of just people who are just in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. It's a story of people who are experiencing life with God and yet are experiencing the full array of human emotions. Yes, there is joy. Yes, there is like pervasive sense of joy. But there are also these moments of pain and discouragement and brokenness. And this is reality. This is our life. This is our story. Um, the truth is nobody's fine. Nobody's fine. Like, we, we come to church, right, and we say, like, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. You can just start saying, no, you're not. You're not, you're not fine. Maybe don't, but. Um, so, uh, the Avid Brothers, um, the song, uh, True Sadness, is a line from the song that, um, yeah, has just sort of been 
been looping in my brain for the past few months. And, and it says this, I still wake up shaken by dreams. I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. No one's fine. Take the time, peel a few layers, and you will find true sadness. True sadness. Uh, if you're here this morning, and you are in a season of discouragement, or it's hard to get here today, um, you're not alone. Like, you are not alone. You're among friends. And you're not the only one in this room who's experiencing that same thing. And, and you're not just not alone in this context, but you're not alone in this context either. Because there have been many, many faithful men and women of God who have felt these similar things, who have gone through seasons of discouragement. And Elijah is one of them. In, in, um, as we continue the story, picking up from last week, I wanted to say this. I, I'm going to go back to this. Because sometimes, sometimes you think like pastors are somehow different or somehow like, well, pastors should be beyond discouragement and beyond depression and beyond all of those things, anxiety and worry. Uh, George, uh, Barna, uh, the Barna Research Group, did a somewhat recent survey and they surveyed pastors, church leaders, and here's what they found. 80% of pastors feel unqualified and discouraged in their roles. Eight out of 10 pastors feel unqualified and discouraged in their roles. 50% would leave if they could find another job. The problem is we're just not good at much else, so we just stick it out. Uh, 70% constantly fight depression. And 80% will leave the ministry within the first five years of graduating from seminary. 80%. So pastors are not different. We're not somehow beyond this stuff. Um, on my last sabbatical, like, I spent a significant amount of time just in counseling. Just talking to a counselor. Processing this stuff. Processing lies that I have started to believe about my role and about what's sort of in my hands and all that. And I needed somebody from outside to sort of help pry some of that away and pry some of these behaviors that I had sort of taken on to pry some of those away and help me see truth in that. If you're in a place like where you, you need somebody like that to help you unpack those things, there is no shame in that. That is, um, God has gifted people to walk with us through those seasons of pain and discouragement. So uh, Elijah, he, I mean, the dude just, he, he bottoms out. And part of the reason is because he made a decision at the end of 1 Kings 18. <clears throat> if you remember the story we talked about last week, he's, he's up on the mountaintop and he sets up this, this massive challenge between himself as the lone prophet of God and 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah. And he, he says, get all of Israel, get all the people, go up onto Mount Carmel, and we're going to have this showdown. And uh, while all of Israel is gathered there on Mount Carmel, um, the, the prophets of Baal and Asherah are exposed as kind of frauds. They're not gods at all. And Elijah prays this simple prayer, God, would you just send fire from heaven and consume this, this offering? And of course, like, Elijah gets his eyebrows singed from like heavenly fire. It was this amazing experience of God's power. And what happens in that moment is it says the hearts of people were turned back to God. 
this amazing kind of euphoric mountaintop experience. The, the chapter uh, 18, verse 39 says that all the people, they fall down on their faces and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What's interesting about that is that's Elijah's name. Elijah's name is the Lord is God. That's what Elijah means. So it's almost like they're like, Elijah, Elijah. They're like chanting his name, that this is the Lord, he is God. This amazing mountaintop experience. And then Elijah caught up in sort of the, the zeal filled with zealousy, which I don't think is a word, but I like it. Uh, filled with zealousy, he says this, 1 Kings 18, verse 40. Now here's where the Sunday school lesson ends. We don't talk about verse 40 in our kids' Sunday school classes. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. So they seize them, and Elijah had them brought down into the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Hey, kids, don't forget your snack. Have a great, great <laughs> afternoon. Good night, kiddos. Slaughtered there. Uh, Elijah killed 900 prophets, 900 people. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that violence? Um... I want to take just sort of a slight sidestep because I think it's important. I want to get to it last week, but we didn't. What do we do with the violence there? I mean, Elijah kills 900 prophets of Baal and Asherah here. And that sounds a lot. I mean, this is Elijah. This is the prophet. And it sounds a lot like an earlier mountaintop experience with Moses. You remember Moses on the mountaintop, Mount Sinai, and he's meeting with God and there's this amazing display of God's power. But while Moses is up on the mountain, everybody thinks he's dead. Because the mountain's been shaken. There's fire on the mountain. And so he, everybody thinks he's dead. So Moses comes off the mountain, Exodus 32, and uh, he begins to see... Um, there we are. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron, who was left in charge, had let them get out of control so that they had become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he, Moses, stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites, this whole tribe of Levi, comes to him. Verse 27, Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 people died. 3,000 people. So Elijah has 900 people killed. Moses has 3,000 people killed. This is Elijah, this is Moses in these moments. I mean, if you know, if we're really honest, the Old Testament has a lot of these stories. I mean, there, if you were going to be there, if you were like somehow in that moment, you would turn your head away because you, you, you couldn't look. And there's, there's, there's really, really gruesome violence. How do we make sense of that? Um, this early, um, as the early church was starting to sort out like the Bible and all of that, there was this guy, Marcion, who said, um, you know what, the God of the New Testament revealed in Jesus and the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, Yahweh, they're not the same God. That's how, that's how this guy, Marcion, he said, oh, there's violence, but Jesus doesn't, he does away with violence, they're different gods. Now, the early church, thankfully, said, no, 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 that is not true. They rejected Marcion's idea as heresy. Um, but the church has, has been sorting this out. How do we make sense of this stuff in the Old Testament and God revealed in Jesus? Um, because as disciples of Jesus, we follow Jesus. As disciples of Jesus, you and I here today, when we read the Bible, we study the Bible, we learn from the Bible, we hear God's voice speaking to us through the Bible, and we follow Jesus. Um, let's, 
just want to unpack this just a little bit further. Take a look at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Because Jesus actually, this text in Matthew 17, helps us tremendously in this. Um, and so we have the Mount, Mount Sinai, 3,000 people die. Mount um, Carmel, where 900 people die. And Jesus now takes his disciples in Matthew 17 to a third mountain. It's called the Mountain of Transfiguration. Matthew 17, starting in verse 1. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. They had a little sailboat, but not in this story. Um, and then he led them up on the high mountain by themselves. So we have this third mountain, okay? Verse 2, and there he was transfigured before them. What does that mean? Well, it means all of a sudden, Peter, James, and John, they had been walking with this man Jesus, who's got flesh and blood and hair, and it was just a man, and now he's up on this mountaintop, and all of a sudden the lenses are sort of changed on the way they see him, and they see him as God's very presence. They see him, Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the shininess of God's shininess. And all of a sudden, that's what they see. This isn't just Jesus, this is the, the very presence of God. He was transfigured, glorified before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Verse 3, and just then there appeared before them, who? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now Peter, verse 4, says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Yeah, yeah, Peter, you think, this is sort of like the understatement of the year. Jesus is glorified in front of you. Two dead guys, Moses and Elijah, are standing there talking to him, and you think, this is good for us to be here. I love that. And, but then here's what Peter says, if you wish, I'll build three shelters. I'll build one for Moses and one for Elijah and one for you, Jesus. I'll build three shelters, and we'll just sort of camp out up here on the mountain. Three shelters, one for you. What, Mo, what Peter is saying here is Moses represented the law, the Old Testament law, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, these first five books of the Bible. Moses was the lawgiver, right? So Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, God speaking through the, the people of old in the Old Testament, representing the prophets. And then there's Jesus, who's God's very word, the inerrant word of God in flesh, in Jesus, and Moses Peter looks at him and says, like, let's just build three shelters. Let's give you all equal weight. I mean, it's Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, and, and now you, Jesus. Let's just build a shelter for all of you. And God corrects him. God actually descends sort of in this cloud, and there's a voice that comes out of the cloud that says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased Listen to him. Listen to him. See, the Bible, the law, the prophets, the Old Testament, its purpose is to point us to Jesus. The, the, the Bible is, is like this signpost that points us to Jesus. And so we read, we study the Bible, even these passages where there's, it's sort of difficult to sort of understand why this happened or how this happened, but what we learn is that Jesus is the clearest revelation of God. God has always looked like Jesus. We just haven't always understood it. Jesus is the clearest picture of God, and so when it comes to these issues of, of some people say like, hey, I follow the Bible. I just follow the Bible. Well, which parts do you follow? Because you haven't greeted anybody with a holy kiss 
as far as I know today, right? Like, that hasn't happened. Um, if there is, we have some problems. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, which parts of the Bible do you follow? Do you follow uh, Exodus 32? Like, we just sort of will, will kill 3,000 people if they step out of line, or 1 Kings 19, slaughter these false prophets, or do you follow Jesus? As, as disciples of Jesus, as Christians, we follow Jesus. We learn from, we study the Bible, and we follow Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. He says this throughout his ministry, but it is maybe the clearest place. He says, you study the scriptures diligently. You study the Old Testament, the law and the prophets diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. They point to me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Life is found in Jesus and we follow him. Does that make sense? Okay, we're going to step back into the sermon now. Um, you're like, that wasn't part of the sermon? What are we doing here? 1 Kings 19, Elijah is, is, he is he's in the tank. Why? Because he made this decision to kill the prophets of Baal and Jezebel, the wicked queen of Israel, is, um, is furious about it. And so she says, um, she's really angry, and she says, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, which is kind of this oath. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I don't make your life like one of theirs by this time tomorrow. I'm going to kill you. That's what, that's what Jezebel says. And what does Elijah do? He says, no, 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 I just saw God come down with fire from the mountain. Now, I'm not scared of you. It's not what he says. Elijah is terrified, and he runs for his life. He runs for his life. It says, uh, he takes off, and when he, come, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So Elijah has this companion, this friend, this, um, this servant, and as he's running for his life, he's headed toward the desert, and he comes to his town, Beersheba, and he says, you know what, I just need to be alone. Leaves his servant there in Beersheba and heads off into the wilderness. How many of you know that fear, that discouragement, that depression has this isolating tendency to it? I just want to be alone. I don't, want to, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just, want to, I, just want to, I just need to deal with this by myself. Our, our pain has this tendency to just pull us into ourselves. And then we just sort of stiff arm everybody else away. That's what Elijah does. That's what we tend to do. Do you know that it's in those moments of pain that we need exactly the opposite? It's not to be isolated, but to be surrounded by a loving community that see us, that love us, that are full of grace and truth. Um, I have had this privilege of just being close to people. And in moments of pain, I've had several experiences over the last 10 years where people have said, you know what, I don't want you to come. I don't want anybody here. And we just said, you know what, um, too bad. So, sometimes, right, as family of God, we have to say, that. Uh, sorry, too bad. Um, because I'm coming. But here's the thing, you don't have to talk to me. You don't have to acknowledge my presence. Pretend I'm not here, but know that you're not alone. You're not alone. Know that I see you and I love you and I'm here. And I've had people later, like just processing what had happened to them, these moments of intense pain, come back and say, you know what, I thought I wanted to be alone. I, I didn't. I was just scared to let somebody in. So sometimes, like, when we're in pain, we just, like, turn into Heisman Christians. Like, we just start stiff-arming everybody away, and we have to resist that tendency. 
If you're in a place of pain, if you're in a place of, of like just sort of you feel this sort of like, ah, oh, it's just sort of pulling you into yourself, if we, if we can find the strength to resist stiff-arming people who love us away from us and inviting them to just come and sit with us. And as others, as we see this happen in the lives of our friends or family or uh, whoever it may be, to just to put ourselves behind that barrier, to, to just say, no, 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 I'm here and you can't get rid of me. Like, I love you and you don't have to talk to me. You don't have to acknowledge my presence, but you are not alone. This is what we do for each other. This is what we need. And this is what Elijah doesn't do. He drops his servant off and he runs into the desert, into the Negev desert. And he runs into the desert and he's all alone and he's just sort of spiraling out of control and he finds this broom tree. This is a broom tree in the middle of the Negev. It's a really unimpressive tree, um, but they, they grow in the arid places like this. And he, he sits down under the broom tree and he's just sort of like, he's, he's, he's tanking and he prays that God would kill him. Like this is what he comes off the mountaintop and the whiplash is so in the contrast from the mountaintop experience to sitting under a broom tree in the desert thinking, God, just take my life. I just want to die. I mean, it's such a stark contrast and yet it's the human story, isn't it? I mean, we have these mountaintop experiences and it seems like in the next moment, we, we just like life is horrible and we can't make sense of it. This is what he prays. He says, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Um, this is an honest prayer. Jonah chapter 4 verse 3, another prophet who prays the same prayer. Jonah uh, chapter 4 verse 3 says, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. You ever prayed that prayer? It's like, I just don't want to go on. What does God do when we're just in that place of just absolute despair? Well, Elijah, he's laying under the broom tree and he falls asleep. He's exhausted. He's exhausted. So he lays down and he falls asleep. And there's this beautiful scene where the angel of God comes to him. The angel of God comes to him and says, um, wakes him up and says, um, get up and eat. And Elijah looked around and there by his head was bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank. And what did he do? He fell asleep again. Now picture this in your minds because like we can miss the humor of this. An angel wakes him up in the middle of the desert and feeds him bread and water and he eats it like no big deal and rolls over like a dude on a Sunday afternoon and falls asleep again. No big deal. Like, I'm, I'm out. Falls asleep again. The angel comes back to him a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for this journey is too much for you. Um, and Elijah gets up and he eats. Do you know, like... What would have happened if Elijah would have fallen asleep a, a second time? What do you think would have happened? The angel comes to him, gives him food, bread, gives him water, and Elijah would have fallen asleep again a second time. Do you know what I think would have happened? I think the angel would have come back a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time. I think, I think God has the resources, and God is going to meet us in our exhaustion, in our brokenness, when we are spiraling sort of into ourselves. God just continues to come to us with his nourishing presence. God, uh, I have a professor, Terry Brenzinger, who, who says this, God knows the difference between a short journey and a long journey. God knows the difference between a short journey and a long journey, and some of us have really short journeys. Some of us, the biggest problems we will face today, 
is that our Wi-Fi is going to struggle to keep up so we can't binge watch our favorite show on Netflix. And that's the biggest problem we're going to face today. That is a short journey, right? And yet, God has what we need. He may not fix your Wi-Fi, but God knows for those of us who like, that's the biggest problem we face. God is with us and will sustain us. But God also knows those of us who have really long journeys, who our life has been one long story of pain and, and brokenness and these decisions and things just seem to keep falling out from underneath us. And God knows that the journey is too much for us. And God just keeps coming to us saying, get up, get up and eat, get up and eat, even while, while we're sleeping there. Our pain, three things, uh, it's in your outline. And, and this I, I find so helpful is from Henry Cloud. Our discouragement, it wants to be three things to us and we can't allow it to. It wants to be personal, pervasive, and permanent. And if we allow it to do it, it will just eat our lunch. Uh, discouragement, it wants to be personal. It wants to say, I'm bad. I am broken. It's my fault. The reason everything has happened is, is because of me. Now, this doesn't mean we don't take ownership for our part of it. But when we start to believe the lie, not just that, here's the deal, I made some bad decisions, if that was the case or whatever, but we start to believe the lie that I am bad. I am all bad. Discouragement will do this to us. It will turn it personal. It will make everything sort of internal. And when it does, then the discouragement becomes pervasive. All of a sudden, our, the lens, this gray lens starts clouding our eyes and everything is all bad. Not only am I bad, everything is bad. The world is bad. My life is bad. It's all bad. And once it does that, it wants to become permanent. It's always going to be bad. It will never get better. And this is the death spiral. This is where Elijah was. And, and God just calm, comes to him and calls him out of it, bringing him, bringing him what he needs to give him strength to continue on. So God gives him, through the angel, gives him the bread, the water, Elijah, the second time, he gets up and he eats and he starts on this journey 40 days into the desert until he comes to Mount Sinai. So he goes into Mount Sinai and he hides in a cave. He's hiding in a cave. And God then calls him out of the cave, says, Elijah, come out, come out of the cave because I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you. And he says this, and then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Literally, it means the sound of silence, a gentle stillness. And then a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, here, here's his story, right? Here's his like, it's my problem and everything is bad. I, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty and the Israelites have rejected your covenant and they've torn down your altars and they put your prophets to death with a sword and I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. And we just sort of, and God says to him, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. Like, maybe, again, we sort of find ourselves like living in this cave uh, of just sort of withdrawing, isolating, just sort of replaying the story of how bad we are, of how bad everything is, of how it's always going to be bad. And yet the voice of God is coming to us in this gentle whisper. Like God is actually coming to meet with us, but we can't hear it. We can't hear it because of the noise, the chaos that's happening in our minds. 
And maybe sometimes we need others, like somebody to just come and sit with us to, to sort of represent God's presence, who can be there, who we can actually see and touch and, and hear their voice saying, you know what, it, you're going to be okay. I am with you. You are not alone. Um, God, I am absolutely confident of this, that God sees you, that God knows you, and he knows your journey. He knows whether it's short or long, and God has what you need, and he's calling to you in the sound of silence, in the gentle whisper. Elijah, I think he was addicted like we get addicted to the big. That's the fire. It's the uh, earthquakes. That's where God is. It's the it's the wind, earth, wind, and fire, um, not the 70s disco band. Um, but like, I, I, I had this camp experience, or I had this conference experience, or I read this amazing book, and I had these all, like, these are great experiences, and then I cratered on the other side of them, because that's not sustainable. And while they may be good, and they may have a place in our life, and God meets us in those places, those kinds of huge experiences... We just can't recreate them all the time, and we will exhaust ourselves if we try it, and God wants to come to us in the gentle stillness, in these small places of silence, when we quiet ourselves and we receive the gift that God has for us. Um, would you be willing to just sort of like get rid of this thing, this thing right here, like to just say, you know what, I... I'm, I'm not going to wear this. I'm not going to pretend I'm fine. I'm not going to be happy all the time. When I'm, unless you're like Joel Osteen. That's okay then. If it's authentic, then do it. Um, but I, I, I need to be honest, and I need to invite people in, and I need people who are going to walk with me. God, thank you that you just continue to come to us. You love us so much that even in our pain, even in our brokenness, our discouragement. God, you just continue to love us and give us what we need. God, maybe some of us need to see ourselves um, just asleep under the broom tree, and we need to feel the tap of your angel um, just waking us up and saying, um, just, just eat this. Just, just, just relax. Just eat this. Just be nourished. Just be fed. God, thanks that you don't condemn us that you don't tell us to suck it up, to fix ourselves. But God, you, you come close to us, you call us out of the cave, and you speak to us with your, your still, still gentle whisper. So speak to us now, Lord.